And actually, this week there's no parsha. There's no weekly portion because the way the Torah split up is that on Shabbos we read a par- one parsha every Shabbos another parsha. But the sh- but if the holidays fall out on a Shabbos, so then that Shabbos we don't read the weekly portion. We read the specific part of the Torah which talks about the holiday. So being that this Shabbos is the first day of Pesach, the Friday night begins Passover, and Shabbos is the first day, so Shabbos morning we'll be reading the part of the Torah which talks about the holiday, and not the weekly Parsha. So the weekly Parsha is on hold now for two weeks, because this Shabbos is the first day of Pesach, and the following Shabbos is the eighth day of Pesach, which again, we'll be reading the part of the Torah which is connected to Pesach. So today, the Parsha is about Pesach, so we'll study... A little bit, there's so much to study about Pesach, but we'll look a little bit <clears throat> into some sources about Pesach and what it means to us. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Is last Thursday a holiday? Because my doctor didn't come, and when we went to the stores, it was all the, the babushka. See, the kids were off from school. Oh, yeah, the I saw that too. Yeah, yeah. Well, last why? Thursday? What was last Thursday? Thursday. Yeah, my roses are all... Yeah, everywhere. Why? And the doctor didn't come either. What was last Thursday? Day before Friday. Day before Friday. I don't know. You don't know? Maybe the kids were off from school for Passover at that point. Last Thursday, no. No, but it could be. Where do you see that? Correct. Some yeshivas. For older, yeah. Some yeshivas do close us, right? That wasn't that. I don't think it was specifically Thursday. It's just that, not the elementary school, but like high school usually has off for either, you know, three weeks or. Right. Oh. Sometimes if it's out of town school for a whole month, yeah, they, they, they want the children, they want the older boys and girls to help their parents. <laughs> yes. God gave I think they'll help them more if they keep them in school. arrangements. God gave him the written law, okay, Moses. Mm-hmm. Now. That means that in that law, he's telling Moses and whoever what's going to happen a few days later. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. That's interesting. He's going to say, you're going to march out, you're going to go, you're going to go through the desert, you're going to have the water split. He's telling this to Moses. He didn't tell them you're going to have the water split, but he, he did tell them that on this day, there will be the 10th plague and he'll be freed from Egypt. But it just reminds me of another joke. The, the wife tells her husband... Um, you got a, the husband comes in before Pesach and he offers his wife to help her. And the wife says, uh, you know, your help, your help will be if you stay out of the house. So he goes out of the house and uh, two hours later he's back. And the wife says, you already back? And he says, well, how much could I help? <laughs> okay. So... <clears throat> You didn't write it down, Jody. No. <laughs> you didn't write it down. I don't have the paper yet. I will. I got oh. <laughs> Think about the papers before the joke. So you're saying to me then that all the things that were going to happen, Moses already knew what was going to happen. I can't tell you that. But I can say I can tell you that what it says in the Torah. The Jewish people were informed that in two weeks' time they're going to leave Egypt, and they'll be freed. That's what they knew. That's what the Torah says, that, uh, that Moshe was told to tell the Jewish people. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we're ready. So two lawyers are, two joy- Jewish lawyers, David and Saul, it's during Pesach, and they're meeting for lunch, but they can't eat any chametz. So they have matzah sandwiches. And they head out to a, fo- a food court and they're sitting down to eat their homemade matzah sandwiches. And one of the waiters comes over and says, you're not to eat your own food over here. So they look at each other and they exchange their sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you can... <laughs> so, Pesach is coming up. Pesach is a fun and exciting time. 
It's a time for family, like we spoke last week, parents and children coming together, brothers and sisters, a time we come together, the community comes together to celebrate Pesach. And by the Pesach Seder, there's, uh, the first night of Pesach, there's the Seder, the Seder night, the first night, the second night. There's so many details, so many customs, so many traditions and rituals. So we will try to look into some of these things that we do and find some deeper meaning and some relevance how these ideas and the things that we do uh, can be a lesson for us in our life. As we always say, we're not just reading a story that 3,000 years ago our ancestors were in Egypt and they were freed. You know, what about us? Are we, are we enslaved? What does it mean that we are leaving Egypt? So let's take a look at source number one. We'll begin with a question. Source number one is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. 3,331 years ago, God appeared to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai. And He told them Ten Commandments. The first commandment begins, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This was seven weeks after the first Passover. Seven weeks after they left Egypt, He appears to them. And tells them, I am your God. And that is the first one of the Ten Commandments, to believe in God, to believe in the one and only God. How does God present himself? You imagine he's, he's coming to the Jewish people for the first time. He's taking out his uh, identity card. Who am I? I'm God. Who am I? I am the God who took you out of the land of Egypt. Quick question. Um, I mean, all the holidays, right? We have like big ones, the major, the minor, is then, I mean, more like the Pesach is considered like the, 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 the most, the most kind of the biggest, the most prestigious, or there's like the, the, even like Purim, Pesach, I mean, Rosh Hashanah, is any... I don't know if they're bigger or smaller, they're more, the origins, there's biblical holidays, no. then there's rabbinic holidays, and there's... Customary, customary holidays, like more traditional holidays. So Pesach is a biblical holiday. Pesach, Shavuos, which is the day the Ten Commandments were given, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, those are biblical holidays. Now, some of the, those are biblical holidays. Then there are rabbinic holidays like Hanukkah, Purim. These are stories that happen after the Torah was given, but the rabbis of the time... Um, enacted different ways of, of celebrating those days. So Hanukkah and Purim. Then there are less days which are like Tu Vishvat, the holiday of the trees. There's Lag Bomer, which is a Kabbalistic holiday. There are other holidays. But yes, Pesach is definitely up there. And it's the first holiday that the Jewish people celebrated because even before they got to Torah, they were in Egypt, they were told to celebrate Passover. But you can't say like Pesach is bigger than... What does it mean bigger? Bigger oh, in what? The, the most, like... It's most the most recognized by the secular world. Like my rabbi used to say the most religious one you would think is maybe uh, Yom Kippur, but he said it's Shabbos. Yes, Shabbos can be more Shabbos strict in certain Shabbos things Shabbos than Yom Kippur. So the question is what you mean bigger? If you mean in regards to the severity, if somebody eats chametz on Pesach, for example, yes, the... the, 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 the uh, even, I mean, people who are not like 100% religious, everybody like celebrates like that's The Torah, you can't... New Year, everybody, I mean, like... Well, it's definitely recognized for a second... That's nothing to do with the Torah. That's, you have to ask the people why they choose one holiday over the other holiday. That's not the Torah. That's people. You have to ask them why they celebrate Pesach more than any other holiday. When it comes to not eating chametz on Pesach, the Torah is extra, um, extra strong. You know, coming out about it. But that, but uh, definitely an important holiday. So the first of the Ten Commandments, God is introducing Himself to the Jewish people. They never met God. They heard that He came and gave these ten plagues. They didn't see God in Egypt. The first time they're witnessing God. And what does He say to them? I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. And seemingly, this is interesting. Why? Because He could have just said, I took you out of Egypt. Why do you have to emphasize that He's our God? He didn't say, right. he said, I am, okay, I am the Lord your God. I took you out of the land of Egypt. Is that, is, is that God's greatest accomplishment? How about I create the world? That's oh, exactly. Right. How about I am the God, I am the God who created you. Right. Hey, let's think of it like this. A father tells his child, his, his son is a little rebellious. 
and he calls up his child and he says, Son, you have to listen to me. You have to honor me. You know why? Because one time you were with your friends and they were, they were beating you up and I saved you. You have to honor me. Is that why the son has to honor the father? The, father, the son has to honor the father because I brought you into this world. You're my son. So the, God is coming to the Jewish people. Hashem is saying, I'm giving you the Torah. I'm giving you all these things. I took you out of the lands of Egypt. Okay, thank you. But he could have said even a greater thing. I am the God. I am the creator of heaven and earth. I created you. I created this world. That is God's credential. This is who he is. He is not... Obviously, if he could create the world, he could also, you know, uh, uh, direct things in this world and take them out of Egypt. But he's the creator of the world. That should be seemingly his... His uh, identity card is coming to the Jewish people. You know who I am? I am the Lord. I am the creator of heaven and earth. Not just the Lord that took you out of Egypt. So this is a question which was posed by many great uh, sages, great rabbis, and there are many answers, some more simple than others. But we will look at one lesson, an answer to this question, which can help us experience Passover in a personal way. That's the question. Obviously, there's something important about, the, about leaving Egypt, that Hashem uses this, the fact that He took them out of Egypt, to present Himself to the Jewish people. And we see the importance of leaving Egypt, the exodus of Egypt, in source number two. Moses said to the people, Remember this day when you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for with a mighty hand, the Lord took you out of here. Moses tells the people, remember this day. Never forget the day that you left Egypt. Even after you come to the land of Israel and you're settled, remember the day. Remember that God, you were once slaves in Egypt and God redeemed you. And another verse, you shall remember the day when you went out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. All the days of your life. And it's actually, this teaches us, the Midrash tells us, this teaches us that we are to mention the exodus from Egypt daily. Every single day in our prayers, we mention the exodus of Egypt multiple times. In the Shema prayer, the third paragraph, it says over there, uh, I am God, your Lord, who I took you out of the land of Egypt. We say it in Shema, in the morning, in the evening, and in the prayers. In the evening prayers, the morning prayers, there's always mention, uh, a mention of the fact that we left Egypt. And many, <clears throat> many, uh, many times, not just once. So why is Egypt, why is the fact that we left Egypt such an important thing that we have to remember? Okay, we were slaves, God took us out, you know, God did a lot of miracles to the Jewish people. We don't remember the miracle of Purim every day. I don't remember the miracle of Hanukkah. Why is the fact that we left Egypt, okay, we were slaves, and he took us out. Why is that so important? And we see the importance even more in source number three. The Torah does not make mention of the names of the months. We have 12 months in the year. The way we refer to them is Nisan. Right now we're in the month of Nisan. Who could help me out? Nisan goes next. The first month is Nisan. Then Iyar, Sivan, Tammuz, Av, like Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, Elul, Rosh Hashanah is the first day of Tishrei, then you have Cheshva and Chanukah is the end of Kislev, then you have Teves, Shvat, like Tu B'Shvat, and Purim is an Adar. We have 12 months, those are the 12 Jewish months. But these names, these names are Babylonian names. These names are about 2,000 years old. But in the times before that, prior to that, in the Torah, the Torah does not refer to the months with the names, these names. The Torah refers to them, How? The first month. Pa Passover is in the first month on the 15th day. Rosh Hashanah is the in the seventh month on the first day. All right? There's no names to the months. But, but, sorry, how come? I mean, Rosh Hashanah, like New Year is supposed to be like the, the, the first month. So it's like right after New Year. Like, you know? Right? That's another thing. Rosh Hashanah, why, why are the months counted from Nisan? Nisan is just past. This month is considered the first month in the, in the number of months. But the year begins with the seventh month, Rosh Hashanah. It's weird, right? Well, wouldn't the first month be January? Wouldn't it be Tishrei the first month? So Nachmanides tells us, Nachmanides is the Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, one of the, what's called the Rishonim, the, you know, the, the sages of the, about a thousand years ago. And he writes like this, The original system was to count months in numeric order, starting from Nisan. 
Thus, any time a person mentioned a month, he was in effect recalling the exodus from Egypt. We are in, say, the sixth month, six months since the month of the exodus. Thus, the numeric naming served as a constant reminder of our deliverance from Egypt. If you would just say, it's the month of Adar, okay, it's the month of Adar. But if we say it's the twelfth month, why is it number twelve? Because it's the twelfth month from leaving Egypt. Hashem wanted that we should always remember the fact that we left Egypt. We're counting the months from the beginning of our liberation. We're always remembering the first month. Now we're month number six, since the number one. The number one, everything starts from the liberation. So yes, the year, the Jewish calendar year, goes by creation. And creation was by Rosh Hashanah. But in Jewish law, whenever we, we, we use a month, whether it's in a marriage contract or just regular, the way we're talking and the way the Torah refers to things, it, the Ramban suggests the reason is to constantly remember to count back to our exodus from Egypt. So we see that there's such uh, emphasis on remembering the fact that we left Egypt. So why is that? That's the whole year, a whole year, not just Pesach. A whole year there's something special about remembering the, the Exodus. And especially when it comes to the holiday of Pesach, you see in source number four, it is a positive commandment of the Torah to relate the miracles and wonders wrought for our ancestors in Egypt on the night of the 15th of Nisan. This Friday night will be the 15th of Nisan. It is a biblical commandment to relate the miracles of the Exodus, the stories, to talk about the templates, to talk about the Jews leaving Egypt. And we have a special book. What's that book called? The Haggadah. What does Haggadah mean? The translation of Haggadah means? Order. Seder means order. The Seder or Haggadah means? To tell. To tell the story because that's the, the, the words of the Torah. You should say the story. And if you look behind you on these two top shelves, those are all kinds of Haggadahs from across the world. From, from Spanish rabbis, from, uh, from Portugal, from, uh, from Egypt, from all over the world. Haggadah is one of the most printed Jewish books, all kinds of versions and commentaries. Agada is a, is a book. There's so many other parts of the Torah, so many other mitzvahs, but some, for some reason, Pesach, the Exodus, and maybe like, like Nadia is saying, it's extra celebrated. There's something unique that, that, that we find about the Exodus. And why, why is that? Source number five. It's not just, it takes us a step further, it's not just, you know, uh, let's say on Hanukkah or Purim. Purim, we, we read the Megillah. What's the Megillah? We read the story of the holiday. We read the story that they were, there was a decree for them to be wiped out and then, and more, you know, the whole story, and, and they were saved. Right? So we read the story. When it comes Pesach night, we don't just read the story. Okay, our ancestors were slaves and they were freed. What do we do? It's like 4D. We actually experience it. Right? We have to eat the matzah that they ate. We have to have more to remember the, the bitter tears and the salt water and we, we lean, we, all sorts of things to actually feel like we are experiencing this. Source number five, as the Mishnah says, in every generation a person must see himself as though he personally has gone out of Egypt. Not just that it happened thousands of years ago. We have to experience it as if we left Egypt. We should feel the tears and we should eat the matzah. God redeemed not only our fathers from Egypt, we say in the Agada, but he redeemed also us with them. It's like we were redeemed from Egypt. Not just we were remembering Egypt from a long time ago. As if we were there and we were redeemed. What does that mean? We weren't in Egypt. I mean, maybe Brian went to Egypt, but I, I was never there. <laughs> Source number six in the words of Maimonides, as if you yourself were a slave and went out to freedom and were redeemed. Therefore, when a person feasts on this night... He must eat and drink while he is reclining in the manner of free men. It used to be the custom of free men, of noblemen, kings and queens, that they would have like this uh, couch and they would lean while they were, while they were eating. And that is a custom and tradition to, uh, on this night when we eat the matzah and we drink the four cups of wine and we have to lean, to lean, to recline, to actually feel like we, were, we are now free. We don't do that when we eat the hamantashen. We don't lean. Right? Why all of a sudden it comes to Pesach? Is it so important? Source number seven, we drink each and every one, both men and women, must drink four cups of wine on this night. Wine is a special drink. It's a drink of, of, of uh, freedom, of free people. Right? Slaves drink just plain water. They don't drink special cups, uh, special drinks. We drink wine. This number should not be reduced. 
Even a poor person who is sustained by charity should not have fewer than four cups. A mitzvah for the community to provide for everybody to have four cups of wine. And when we drink the four cups, we lean, or grape juice, whatever. But definitely not vodka. Unless it's... <laughs> what, what happens, like, it sounds like you drink, like, the full cups. What yeah. if you already drunk, like, up to three? Gram what if 60, you're... 86. 86. Oh, yeah. Anyway, but what, what else, like, yeah, somebody, or you already drunk after three cups, I mean, you still have to... It doesn't say to get drunk. No, I mean, but, I mean, you... Maybe the question is, what if we can't handle four cups of wine? So what's the, what's the question? Are you allowed to get drunk? So, I mean, like, the person, I mean, he gets drunk, he's like, I guess... You say, so how's he going to get a fourth cup? So, so, that's so, what, so you got to know your limits. And it's not no, just for Pesach. If you, if, you, if you can't, so then you, you, know, you can't drink the fourth. So that's why they, nowadays they sell wine, which is 4%. It's basically very low in alcohol. And you don't have to drink a big cup. All you have to drink is uh, about uh, two-thirds of this, two-thirds of this cup. And you don't just drink them one after another. The first one you make Kiddush, the second one you read the Haggadah with it, the third one... What if we can't handle four cups of wine? So then you have grape juice. Uh, so we have to do uh, one cup or two cups of wine and the rest of the grape juice? Or? Either, either way, whatever is best for you. So we see that it's not just something that we're, we say a story of what happened. We're actually reliving it, re-experiencing this. And the question is, why? So one answer is, what does it mean that we were in Egypt? A simple answer, which is actually in the Haggadah itself, source number eight. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. After we hear the four questions, the response begins, Avadim Ainu, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord our God took us out from there with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. If the Holy One, blessed be He, had not taken our fathers out of Egypt, then we, our children, we, our children, and our children's children would have remained enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. So that God gives us a simple explanation. It's not that we were actually in Egypt, but if God did not redeem them from Egypt, then we would still be there. So by taking them out, he, is also, he also took us out because of, as a result of that redemption, we are free men. Otherwise, we would still be there in Egypt. But, that, but the, this explanation needs more explanation because the same thing can go for anything. If Purim, if God didn't save the Jews by Purim, we, would also, we wouldn't be around. We, our ancestors would all be wiped out. So by saving them in Purim, the Jews in Persia, we were also saved. And if God didn't give the Jews in the desert the manna, they would all die and we wouldn't either, either be here, you know? So, the same thing applies for anything. So that's the first question. Why is it so important? Why is it the first of the Ten Commandments? That's how God present, represents himself, presents Himself. Why is it we have to remember it every day? We count the months to remember it. Why on the night of Pesach do we have to experience as if we were there, were we really there? Why do we have to put such emphasis on the exodus of Egypt? That's the first question. Second question is source number nine. Right before the Manishtana, the four questions are asked, there's one paragraph which begins like this. Hey, Lachma Anya, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Referring to the matzah, the matzah is called the bread of affliction, the bread that a poor man, poor men, because the poor men don't have time or good uh, ingredients to put into the dough for it to rise. This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Does that make sense? Is that correct? This is the matzah that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt? Oh, going out of Egypt. On the way out, they didn't have time. They were rushed. The Torah says the Egyptians were scared. The, 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 the firstborn were, were dying. And they chased them out of Egypt. They didn't want to have matzah. The matzah, they were ready for it, uh, to wait for it to rise. But they were chasing them out. So they put it on their back and the sun baked it and it was matzah. So why are we saying this is the bread that they ate in the land of Egypt? We should say on their way out in the desert, on their way out they ate the matzah. Maybe because there maybe was we still need to correct. Maybe there was a mistake in the Haggadah. No, maybe we're still. Maybe we're, it's because we were still suffering when we left Egypt. We were still suffering when we left Egypt. Okay, what does that mean? I mean like we didn't have a perfect life. Like we were still like uh, the Egyptians were still chasing us. They were still 
So it wasn't, we weren't exactly in Israel. You're right, you're right. It took time to get to Israel. But where did they eat the matzah? It's a, it, everything has to be perfect. We can't say uh, something which is it's not, it's not true. It says, this is the bread they ate in the land of Egypt. Okay, so those are the two questions. Let's, be, let's talk uh, a story. Today is a special day on the Hasidic calendar. You know, it's not a biblical holiday, but it's a Hasidic, especially in Chabad. Today is the birthday of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. It's a special day. It's the day that in 1902, the Rebbe was born to his parents in the city of Nikolaev in Ukraine. Until he was about uh, eight or nine years old, that's when his parents, when they moved to Dnepropetrovsk in Ukraine, where he, eventually his father became the chief rabbi of Dnepropetrovsk, and I believe he was considered the chief rabbi of the whole Ukraine. But um, the Rebbe was born on this day. It's a special day. It's an auspicious day. And I'll, I'll tell you a story connected with the Rebbe. There was a man named Gimpel Oremland. I happen to know his son a little bit. Gimpel Oremland. He, this, this story is going back probably to the late 1950s, early 1960s. He lived in Miami. He was a businessman in real estate. And... <coughs> And uh, he wasn't, a, you know, a Lubavitcher, a Chabadnik. He was a, a nice Jew. And he, at the time, was building, he bought a piece of land, and he was building, in the process of building, a upper-class kind of a nursing home. Really nice place. And he was investing a lot of money into it to build this place. He was in Brooklyn for the holiday of Simchas Torah, and he came to visit 770 Eastern Parkway, the shul synagogue of the, of the Rebbe. And at the time, they were selling the honors. You know, they, they sell the honors. Who wants to buy the last aliyah to be called up to finish the Torah or to begin the, the, the Torah uh, again and different things they were selling. And people would buy it, you know, there were some rich people there. And, you know, the Rebbe was there watching everything. And this guy comes in, he hears they're selling something, and he wants to give some tzedakah, some charity. He says, I'm pledging $1,000 for, for the synagogue, which at that time was a substantial amount of money. And the Rebbe hears this. He didn't, uh, they, I don't think this man ever met the Rebbe before. And the Rebbe tells him, I think you should get 5000 And he's a bit shocked, you know. The Rebbe's telling him what to do. And uh, he, he didn't have the money, you know. He was, at that time, it was a lot of money. He definitely didn't have it in, uh, you know, in cash. All his money was uh, invested into this building. He didn't see how he could do it, but he decided, the Rebbe said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And the Rebbe told him, by next year, you'll, have you'll be able to give double and triple. Okay? So he had faith in the Rebbe's words. And after, the, after Yom Tov, after the holiday, he gave his, uh, his pledge, figured it out. And he's waiting throughout the year for a good opportunity or some business opportunity to come up that he's going to make uh, the thousands. He's going to make lots of money and be able to give lots of money. But the whole, almost the whole year passes and nothing. Finally, it's the last day of the year. It's Erev Rosh Hashanah, the day before Rosh Hashanah. And he gets a call from a hospital. This hospital was right next door to his building where he was building, this nursing home. And this hospital says, listen, you're building this nursing home. We need, we are, we need to expand our hospital. What you're building is perfect. It's, it's like a, you know, a glove. It's going to fit right into our hospital. We're going to connect it. And we're, we, we, need to, we want to expand. And we're ready to, to buy the building. He didn't want to sell it because he invested a lot into it. And uh, he wasn't interested. So he threw out an exorbitant amount of money. He said, I'm gonna, uh, my price is, is way above. And he's sure they're going to re you know, reject and that's it. But they said, sure, we're, we're, we're ready to pay for it. And right away, they, uh, you know, uh, they put down a deposit. And the deposit, his, his um, personal, um, how do you say? What he made off the deposit was $15,000. Triple what he gave, the 5000 Anyways, okay, he comes to, back to the Rebbe. This time, Simchasara, he's ready to make more money. He's, he's ready there, he's going to give a, to, he, he wants to give a big pledge and he's going to make uh, even more this year. He's ready for the Rebbe to give him a blessing. 
and he comes there and he doesn't know he doesn't know how much to give. So he says, I'm gonna give whatever the Rebbe tells me to give. Okay? So the Rebbe didn't say anything, but after the holiday he went in for a private audience with the Rebbe, and the Rebbe told him you should give $126. He's like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> Last year I gave a thousand and I made I gave five thousand and I made triple. So the Rebbe said, uh, we don't need your money over here. You know, it's not just about fundraising. We don't need your money. That's not the point. The point is for you to go beyond yourself, to go out of your comfort zone, to push yourself to do more. Last year, you thought you are going to give 1000 I said to get 5000 You were going out of yourself for Hashem. You were giving more than yourself. You are going out of your habit, your, your routine, what you are what you're used to giving, what's easy for you, what's, what's natural for you to give. You're going beyond yourself. And you did that. It was accomplished. You gave 5000 and you broke your boundaries. This year, whatever I'm going to tell you to give, it's not going to mean anything to you because whatever you're going to give, you know you're going to make more. So you could give $126, right? It's not the point of your how much money is going to be on your, on your chart in heaven, how much money you gave to charity. That's not the point. The point is for you to go beyond yourself, for each of us to go break ourselves and go more, the extra step, the extra mile beyond our comfort. That's what is demanded from a Jew. And that's really what it means to leave Egypt. And let's see that inside. Source number 10. Beautiful quote from Rabbi Salvechik, known as J.B. Yasha Ber Salvechik. Uh, I believe he lived in Boston in later years. He writes like this, Source 10. In reciting the Haggadah, one is not reminiscing about an ancient past, about people and occurrences enveloped in the mist of millennia so many years ago, but rather is telling a personal story, pouring out one's heart, confessing something intense, passionate, and crucial that happened to oneself. At this level, one is preoccupied not with history, but with the living present. Not with others, those people that were in Egypt, but with oneself and with and one's own exciting life. Sitting down at the Seder, celebrating Passover is a personal journey, our journey from out of uh, out leaving our Egypt into freedom. What does that mean? What is Rabbi Salvechik referring to? So the word in Hebrew for Egypt is, what's the, Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is the way that the Torah calls Egypt. Even today in modern Hebrew, Mitzrayim, Egypt is Mitzrayim. What does Mitzrayim mean? The literal translation of Mitzrayim means Mitzarim. What does it mean? Pain, sorrow? Uh, similar, sorrow comes from the word Mitzrayim, but literally Mitzrayim means boundaries, borders. Mitzar, you come to the border, that's the Mitzar. Because someone's in, in sorrow, someone's in pain, he is confined, right? So that's where it comes from. Mitzrayim means boundaries. So there is a place called Mitzrayim, a place which has the, has the borders of Egypt, but then there's the concept the Kabbalah teaches us that Mitzrayim is an idea. There is a, there is a place called Egypt and there is a concept called Egypt. What's the concept of Egypt? Source number 11. Our personal Egypt, we each have an Egypt, is our self-imposed limitations and boundaries. Our comfort zones and habits that hamper our ability to grow, change and self-actualize. Recalling our escape from Egypt is meant to stimulate us to engage in a personal exodus. And thus every day we see ourselves as leaving Egypt. We each have a personal Egypt. We have things that we have our comfort zone, the things, our routine, the things we do. For us, it's easy to give $1,000 for tzedakah. That's what I want to give, right? Could you give a little more? He, he managed to find the 5000 You know, you had to do something, but he managed to figure it out. Then he got 5000 out for charity. But... It was beyond his comfort zone. He did more than what was comfortable for him. His boundaries, I'm going, my limit is a thousand. That's how much I can give to charity. And here he was pushed to go beyond himself. That's Egypt. We each have our own Egypt. We have the things that we, that this is what I'm ready to do, right? I'll help somebody. If it's on my way to work, I'll give somebody a lift, right? But if he's going to go out two blocks and it's going to take me three minutes, oh, that's already, that's too much for me, right? So if we push ourselves to do more than 
what is easy for us, what is natural for us and comes easier, that is leaving our Egypt. And we could apply that to so many things, right? There is, in us, we have uh, Egypt. And every day we have Egypts. We have an Egypt for today, and if I can leave my Egypt for today, tomorrow there's another Egypt. Whatever the Egypt is, whatever the boundaries are, my limitations, to push ourselves a little bit more is leaving Egypt. And when we recall uh, the exodus of Egypt the the, as a nation, the national exodus, that reminds us, that stimulates us to engage in our personal exodus, to work on leaving our, our, our personal Egypt. We see this by, by Moshe. First, I think it's time for a joke. <laughs> Not too serious here. How does the saying go? If, even if you're on the right track, even if you're on the right track, if you just sit there, you're going to get run over. If we just sit there and we, not, we don't go beyond ourselves, we just do the regular thing, we could be doing, we're on the right track. But if we don't constantly, we're not on the move, we're constantly growing, constantly learning more, constantly going beyond ourselves and pushing ourselves to do more. <clears throat> so little uh, Jimmy, Jim comes home from Hebrew school. And uh, his mother asks him, uh, what did you learn today? He says, well, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. And this mighty man, Moses, who was so powerful, he came into Pharaoh's palace. He beat him up and he tied him down to the floor. And while he was holding him down, the Jews escaped. And they came to the Red Sea. And Moses took out his walkie-talkie and he called in for reinforcements. And the engineers built this bridge across the Red Sea and the Jews passed over and then the helicopters came and they <laughs> bombed out the bridge and the Egyptians were, were drowned. So the mother says, really? Is that what your rabbi told you? So Jim says, no, but if you, but if I tell you what he did tell us, you'd never believe it. <laughs> but that's the story of Exodus. So Moshe Rabbeinu, part of the story is Moses is by the, the burning bush. We spoke about the burning bush a couple of times. One of the things God tells Moses, even before he talks to him about, I'm sending you to Egypt, to Pharaoh, to beat him up. What does God tell Moses? This place where the bush is burning is holy. What does he tell him to do? Anyone? Take off your shoes. Take off your shoes. Oh, we have a, take off your shoes. What kind of business is that? Take off your shoes? I mean, why, why does he have to take off his shoes? Okay, it's a holy place. Whatever it is, the explanation. Take off your shoes. But the words in Hebrew are Shal ne'alecha me'al raglecha. Shal. Remove ne'alecha your shoes me'al raglecha from your feet. Now in the Torah, there's no, um, there's no vowels in the Torah. right? So we have a tradition how we read it. But the word for shoes, ne'alecha, can also be read na'alecha, which means Locks. A lock. You lock the door, it's called a man'ol. Na'ol. If the door is locked, it's na'ol. The door is locked, right? Am I correct? So shoes, na'alecha can mean shoes, but it could also be, if you change the vowels around, can mean a lock. And regalecha can mean your feet, but it could also mean regilus, regilut. What does regilut mean? Think your tendencies, the thing, your routine. Okay? So it can be read, take your shoes off your feet or remove the locks from your routine. God says, you want to come close to the burning bush? You want to come talk to God? What do you have to do? Take your locks off your routine. Isn't it a schedule tool? Like the teacher will come to classes and she could use that word, I guess, the schedule for the day. Which word? Regilu? Yeah, I guess like, what's the schedule? What's the regular things that we do? God is telling Moshe, if you want to come close to Hashem, you want to connect to Hashem, take your locks off your routines. We have our routines, we have our habits, we have the things that are comfortable for us, and it's locked, that's it, this is, we're not going to go any further. This is what, I, this is what I'm used to doing, I'm not um, interested, or it's hard to break forth and do, and do more what's a little bit not so comfortable. What does Hashem tell Moshe, you want to come close to Hashem, you want to come to the burning bush, take the locks off your routine, unlock the lock and be open open yourselves for growth 
for change for the good. Source 13, we need to make an honest reckoning by the Seder to identify our proclivities, you know, the things that we're used to doing. Once we have, a, we have to identify, right? We need to, it's called a cheshbon, make a calculation and see in ourselves an honest reckoning what to identify in ourselves. Once we have a firm handle on who we are and the areas that require attention, we can get to the work of leaving the confines of our, of our Egypt by suppressing our bad habits. And then, even though it might be hard, this is what I'm used to doing, to suppress them and then channeling them in useful holy ways. Slowly but surely, we will shed one layer of Egypt after another in a process that is endless. It's endless because we're never going to be perfect. And every day we can always go out of another layer of Egypt and become a better person and a better person and go out of our comfort zone and change ourselves and work on ourselves. <clears throat> so that explains to us a little bit why the concept of leaving Egypt is a fundamental concept in Judaism. Judaism is not only about doing things, it's about how much it is how much is demanded of you? How much does that mitzvah demand of you? How much do you push yourself for that mitzvah? Right? So here we gave $126. Here we gave, you know, $5,000. That's not the point. The point is to push beyond your limits. For somebody else, you might have been a billionaire. For him to give $5,000 is no big deal. No, for him he has to give until he feels it. You know, that's the expression. You give charity until you can feel it. If you don't feel it, so then that's easier for you, for that person, right? So each, it's not about how much charity to give. Oh, this guy gave this amount, this guy gave that amount, this guy, you know, studied Torah so much and he only started less. doesn't matter. For somebody, he's very studious and he was born this way, so for him to study Torah, it comes very easy. And for somebody else, he might give one hour a week to come study Torah, but it's going out of his schedule and it's, it's not what he's comfortable, it's not what he's used to, then it can be he's leaving Egypt and he's not leaving Egypt he is serving God he's pushing himself to, to serve Hashem and one is just serving his nature sort of that's what he likes to do that's just that's just enjoyable for him right some people they do exercise and they're schwitzing away and they're, they're sweating and it's very very hard you know the, the, the teacher could be doing the same thing but it's nothing for them right so it's all, it's a, that's a fundamental thing of Judaism. And that is why, how God presents himself to the Jewish people. He doesn't say, I created heaven and earth. God can make heaven and earth. We're not creating heaven and earth. That's not what Judaism is about. So I should create things. I can't create things. God created heaven and earth. That's fine. God is telling us, you wanted to know what's, the, what's our relationship about. I am God who took you out of Egypt. Judaism is about leaving Egypt. It's about leaving yourselves, going beyond your Egypt, going beyond your boundaries and your limitations, pushing yourself a little bit more in the right way, in a holy way. That's how Hashem presents Himself. And especially when it comes to the night of Pesach. Source number 14. The story of the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, Rebbe Shneir Zalman. He was imprisoned for a terrible crime of teaching Torah by the Tsarist government in, 18, in 1798, 1799. And one of the ways they, uh, one of the things they did to the prisoners, they put them in a cell, cellar, a cell with uh, no, no uh, clocks, no windows. They shouldn't be able to tell the difference between night and day and they should be a little, you know, mixed up. And they come in one time, the guard tells him, uh, it's time to go to sleep, you know, get ready for bed. And the, the Alter Rebbe, the way he's referred to, the Alter Rebbe, the old rabbi says, it's not nighttime, it's 2.13 in the afternoon. And the guard was shocked, how do you know what time it is? You, you didn't see night or day for such a long time. So he answered him in source 14. Each day and each hour has a divine configuration for that time. This energy gives the strength and direction for the events of the day. So what he was telling him was that every hour of the day, every minute, there is a godly energy for that time. And he was a holy man. He was able to tell from the energy, the spiritual energy, what was you know, f felt in the room, what time it was. So when a special event occurs on a day, there is a unique divine energy for that event. Each year on the anniversary of that special event, that the energy is remembered, is recalled, and it recurs. 
The physical circumstances have changed. So the actual event does not happen again. But the spiritual force is happening again. So when it comes July 4th or another you know, holiday, it's not that something is happening on July 4th, 2019. It's we're commemorating what happened you know, 300 years ago, you know, whatever happened. And then the same thing with other holidays. It's not that there's something special happening, there's a special day. No, it's just we're celebrating what happened on this day many years ago. But in Judaism, it's not like that. We're not just celebrating Pesach because 3,000 years ago they left Egypt. Every year, and the same thing with every holiday, everything, it's a reoccurrence. The spiritual energy that happened at that time, that reoccurs. And the same thing for a birthday, for example. A birthday is not just I'm celebrating that I was born so many years ago. We say that on a birthday, a person's mazel is strong. A person can give blessings. There's a special day in, 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 uh, in, in uh, Jewish teachings, right? It's, a day of, it's not just a day of celebration what happened so many years ago. It is, it's like a reoccurrence. There's a special energy for this person. When he was born, there was a spiritual energy for him to be born. And that reoccurs every year. And the same thing when it comes to Pesach, Source 15. On Passover, the unique divine energy was one of redemption. At that time, when they left Egypt, there was an energy of redemption. So on this day, we were redeemed from Egyptian bondage and Egyptian mindset. So each year on the day of Passover, the unique divine energy is once again present and accessible. This energy is even more pronounced at the Seder. This was the exact time of redemption. Right? It was eight day holiday, but it began with the night of the Seder. So each year, it is once again the time of redemption. It's not just we're celebrating that so many years ago there was a redemption. At this hour, every year, there is an energy, a spiritual energy of redemption. Now we're not in Egypt. So what is the spiritual energy for? For our Egypt. To leave our personal Egypt. Source 16. When God emancipated us from Egypt, that was only the beginning. It was a physical liberation. Okay, then they were actually physical slaves. They were slaves in Egypt with their bodies. And they were redeemed from there. But... Uh, it was a physical liberation. They were liberated from the physical pain and enslavement, but not a total spiritual one. They didn't fully leave their spiritual, personal Egypts. The purpose of God's taking us out of Egypt was to open the path for future personal redemption. The entire purpose of celebrating the Seder is to evoke that initial power of breaking through our boundaries. We are not celebrating something that happened 3,000 years ago. But on the contrary, what happened 3,000 years ago was a celebration, an initiation of our potential for freedom today. God, yes, 3,000 years ago, we took them out of Egypt. But I am the God who liberated, who took you out of Egypt, God tells the Jewish people. By taking you out of the physical Egypt, the land of Egypt, I gave you the ability to overcome your personal Egypt, to push yourselves beyond your comfort zone, to leave your personal Egypt. And that Egypt, you don't leave right uh, so fast every day you leave one layer after another layer whatever level you're on you get used to that level now leave that level if you get 5,000 now you're comfortable with 5,000 now you can you can leave a, even a higher level there's always an Egypt that we can leave so we're what are we saying about this matzah the, this is the matzah that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. You're right, they didn't eat it in the land of Egypt, but they were still in Egypt. We're telling ourselves in the beginning of the saying there that the say there is not just about the matzah they, that they ate when, um, that the matzah, it's not just about they left Egypt so many years ago. Even after they left Egypt, they ate the matzah in Egypt. Because even when they were in the desert, they were still in Egypt. They still had their personal Egypt. And that's also us. We also have our personal Egypt. And that is what the Seder is about. It's not just, yeah, what, what happened then was the beginning. It was uh, God giving us the ability that we are stronger than our oppressors. We are stronger than our limitations. The limitations are there for us to go beyond their limitations. To push ourselves more and go out of our personal Egypt. How do we do that? So there's 15 steps. They say there has 15 steps which helps us leave our personal Egypt. And the 15 steps guide us as we see in Source 17. They say there is not merely a sequence of rituals. You know, do this, do that. And you know, each feature of the evening's proceedings speaks a certain message to us. There are 15 important signposts that will help us to chart the precarious path from personal exile to redemption. It's not easy. 
for us to leave our personal exile. But the 15 steps of the Seder are such, they're so deep and they have such meaning. It's not just do this, do that. The names and the, each of the steps can teach us and guide us how we can leave our personal Egypt. And the reason why it's number 15, 15 is a special number. God's name, we say in the Apostle, Kol HaNeshama Tahalel Yah, Hallelujah. God's name, Yud, hey, that's God's name. Yud is how much? The number, the gematria. Ten. Yud is ten, and hey is? Five. Five. Ten plus five equals fifteen. You want to get to the burning bush? You want to get to God? Fifteen steps. The Seder is fifteen. And we find the number fifteen many times. We find it in the temple, in the base of Mikdash, the holy temple, to get to the, to, the, to the main sanctuary. There was fifteen steps to go up. To ascend 15 steps to get to, to, to the Kedusha, to get to the holiness. We find that the holidays are the 15. When did God reveal himself in, in, in Egypt for the 10th plague? The 15th of the month. When is Sukkot? The 15th day of the month. We celebrate Sukkot. And we find the number 15. For example, King Solomon. King Solomon was the wisest of men. It was considered the greatest time for the Jewish people. He was the 15th generation from Abraham. And many things. In Psalms, we have 15, uh, Shir Hamalos. There's many things in the prayers. The number 15. The number 15 is associated with our coming close to God. So what are some of the steps of the Seder? The main part, of course, we spoke about having four cups of wine. We spoke about leaning. And there's the mitzvah of eating matzah. Right? Why did the matzah quit its job? So it didn't get a raise. <laughs> the matzah is nice and flat. What does matzah teach us? <laughs> matzah teaches us humility. Source 18. Throughout the other days of the festival, eating matzah is left to one's choice. Right? For eight days, we don't eat chametz. We don't eat leaven. But throughout the other days of the festival, eating matzah is left to one's choice. If one desires, one may eat matzah. If one desires, one may eat rice, millet, and roasted seeds or fruits, as long as they don't eat bread. But on the night of the 15th, eating matzah is an obligation. Once one eats the size of an olive, not literally, but the flour, you know, a nice size matzah, he has fulfilled his obligation. There's a mitzvah to eat matzah on the night of Pesach. And the eating of the matzah teaches us, not just eating the matzah, it's the bread of faith. And there's so much we can talk about matzah. The Jewish people relied on God. They didn't pack any sandwiches. They didn't have what to eat. They were going into the desert. In, in Egypt, at least the Egyptian gave them some food to eat. Here, all they took with them was some matzah. What are they going to eat in the desert? They relied on God, and God did provide the manna. So matzah is the food of faith. Matzah is considered, matzah is, teaches us humility to, to, to trust in God. So matzah is one of those steps. And there's so much we can learn when you take an Agadah, take some with commentaries, and you can, by the Seder, sit down and see how we can take the 15 steps of the Seder and leave our personal Egypt. Another step is the Maror. The bitter herbs, we take lettuce, romaine lettuce, which at the, can be bitter. Source 9, or horseradish, source 19. Take the marrow into your hand and say, this marrow, what we eat, for what reason? Because the Egyptians embittered our fathers' lives in Egypt. As it is said, they made their lives bitter with hard service, with mortar and, and with bricks. So the marrow reminds us of the hard labor. But what do we do with the marrow? We don't eat the plain marrow. What do we dip it into? Salt water. Wait. The onions. We dip into salt water. What do we dip the more in? What's called charoses. What's charoses? Source 20. The charoses commemorates the clay with which our forefathers worked in Egypt. Charoses is, it looks like clay. Well, what's charoses made out of? Apples, pears, walnuts, a little bit of wine, right? Apples and pears are sweet. So maybe it looks like hard labor, but it tastes very sweet. What does that teach us? Source, nine, source 21. The appearance of the charoses clearly calls to mind the harsh servitude to which our ancestors were sub subjected. But when we put charoses in our mouths and we taste it, we experience something quite different. It has a sweet taste. A taste such as no slave ever experienced. Its sweetness is its association with freedom. Yes, we take the Mara. Mara resembles our leaving our bad habits. It's not easy to leave Egypt, I tell you. You think it's easy to push yourself to go beyond? 
what your what's easy, what's what's uh, what's your routine to push yourself to do another mitzvah, to push yourself to, to help another person, to push yourself to become a better person in general. It's not easy, it's hard work. You want to thin out, it's hard. You want to you gotta work very hard. You want to become a healthier person, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, it's hard. It's more or it's bitter. But we take the more, we dip it into sweetness. Because when we go beyond ourselves, we come, we're doing the right thing. We're coming closer to Hashem. We do the steps of the Seder. We, we go out of our Egypt. At the end, it's sweet. That's how we really grow and serve Hashem. And towards the end of the Seder, after the 15th step, what do we do? Source 22, after Berkas Mozan, after benching, after uh, grace, after meals, the fourth cup is filled. And it is the custom to open the door for Elijah the prophet who visits every Seder to remind us that tonight is a night of divine vigil and we are not afraid of anything. We are close to Hashem. Elijah, God's angel, comes to visit us to tell us you leave your personal Egypt. That is serving Hashem. That is some of the steps of the Seder, just uh, quick. But each of the steps of the Seder, there's so much depth and so much mystical meanings and messages teaching us how we should leave our personal Egypt. Passover is not just about what happened thousands of years ago. It's a personal experience. Getting back to the matzah, the rabbi was sitting on the, be- on the bench in the park on Pesach. He's munching some matzah. And next to him, he sees a blind man with those sticks. And uh, he feels bad for the man. So he offers him a piece of matzah. And the blind man is feeling the matzah. And after a minute, he tells the rabbi, who in the world wrote this stuff? <laughs> and all the, the holes. Okay, too corny? Finally, we'll get to the final part here. So we were liberated from Egypt. All right, we're celebrating our liberation, our freedom. But are we truly free? No. Can't eat anything on Pesach. I mean, come on. <laughs> Even the kosher for Passover things don't taste so good. Right? I mean, what does the Torah mean that we're free? What does it mean to be free? What, what would you call a free person? Personal freedom. Freedom to be who or what you want to be. Freedom to be who or what you want to be, right? Okay, that's a better description. Happy. What does it mean free? You say I'm a fr- someone who says I'm a free person. Someone might say I'm free to do whatever I want. Yes. Right? right? No one's telling you what to do. It's a free country. Right? But it's not a free country. You know, I saw in the news a few, uh, last week this guy was trying to jump off the, the Brooklyn Bridge and the police came and they arrested him. Hey, you can't do whatever you want. So what is this? It is a free country or it's not a free country? Freedom stuff over there. <laughs> And what if somebody is an alcoholic? Is he a free person? He can do whatever he wants? No, he's a slave to his addictions. And many of us are slaves, or all of us are slaves in some way to our comforts. We are a social standing. We're, we're, we're a slave. We don't want to do certain things. Because even though we may know it's right, I don't say we, some people may, it's hard to, to do different than everybody else. If, if, you know? So what does it really mean to be free? I think Jody said it well. Freedom, source 23. People think as free to do, I'm free to do whatever I want. But that's not true freedom. Freedom is like <clears throat> free to be who I really am. Source 23. Judaism defines freedom very differently. True freedom is the ability to express who you really are. If there are levels to your personality that have not been explored, if your soul has not has not had the opportunity to be expressed and you are not yet free. We are Jewish. We have a Jewish soul. If our Jewish soul was not expressed, then we are not truly free. The things that help us express who we really are, that is really being free. So free doesn't mean that I can eat whatever I want, do whatever I want. Free means that you can express your, be who you really are. Right? Source 24. Even the seemingly restrictive laws are only there to allow us to tap into our inner self. Because sometimes it is only through restrictions that our true self can come out. Let's take an example. Stop here for a second. Let's take an example. Anyone here play soccer? Soccer. Oh, it's not an American sport? Nope. Nope. 
Now it is. Uh, now it is. There are more, there are more kids actually playing soccer than baseball. Okay, so let's ask those kids that are playing soccer. Are you allowed to use your hands during soccer? No. You're not use your hands. Well, if you're rolling. If you're a player, your defense, your offense, you know how to use your hands, right? Then on soccer, if you if you do you your hands, you're off. It's a, what's it called a what they, yeah. So, is it very? Uh, is it uh, you're gonna call? Are they free people on the field? No, they're not free to use their hands. But you know what? By not using their hands, they learn to do all kinds of things with their feet. They would never learn how to play, how to use the build, use the, the how do you say the koychus, the the strengths, you know, of the, of the feet, and learn to do all kinds of maneuvers and tricks and kicks and all kinds of things. Are you playing soccer? If you're allowed to use your hands, so everyone knows hands is easier. But you learn by not using your hands, by your hands being restricted, you are free to explore the abilities of your feet. Right? And the only way is if you would never use your feet because you could always use your hands. So sometimes it is only through restrictions that our true self can come out. The underlying purpose of Jewish customs is not to tie us down. On the contrary, it's not God needs new slaves. Okay, you are slaves to Pharaoh, now you're my slaves. Now don't eat chametz and put on tefillin and don't eat this and don't eat that and don't, you know. That's not what it's about. On the contrary, they serve to quieten the noise of our mundane everyday existence and help us tune in to the deeper messages of life. On Passover, we are indeed limited in what we eat, but by changing our usual habits, by breaking ourselves and going beyond our habits, we are liberated to see beyond the everyday. Our souls get a chance to be heard. Our souls can be heard. And nothing can be more freeing than that. So yes, we are free people. God, when, took, when he, God took us out of Egypt, He made the Jewish people free. Free people that are stronger than their struggles, stronger than their habits, and they have the ability to break free and go beyond. Part of being free is by certain restrictions to bring out our neshamas, bring out our souls. So, a quick story, and then we'll recap. I shared the story, I think last week, by the Tefillin Club, but a beautiful story. Um, about this Soviet Jewry. In the early 1990s, over a million Jewish people came to the land of Israel from Russia, from the Soviet Union. Finally, after 70 years of oppression, of communism, they were let out. And along with the million Jews came uh, some non-Jews who either thought they were Jewish or wanted to be Jewish and come to the land of Israel and the rabbis at the time a lot of, had a lot of cases to deal with to make sure who is Jewish, who is not Jewish. It's okay to be not Jewish, but if someone claims to be Jewish, you have to make sure either they're Jewish or they're not Jewish. So this man comes, you know, a lot of them, they weren't too religious because growing up in communist Russia, they, everything was secretive and everything was illegal and forbidden. and They didn't know much, so it was harder to prove their Ju Jewishness. So one man comes to Rabbi Israel Meir Lau, who's actually the youngest survivor of Buchenwald. He's still alive, Baruch Hashem. Uh, the famous picture of a boy, if you've ever seen, a boy uh, standing like this with a cap. He's like an eight, nine-year-old boy. That's him. It's in the, yeah, it could be. Yeah, that's Rabbi Lau. Rabbi Israel Meir Lau. And he was actually the, the guest speaker by the uh, conference of Chabad, Chabad Shluchim Rabbis a couple of years ago. So, Rabbi Yisrael was the chief rabbi at the time in Tel Aviv. Later on, he, was, he became the chief rabbi of Israel. But at the time, he was the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. And uh, he was dealing with a case. A man comes and he says, I'm Jewish. But he didn't have any documents, didn't have anything to prove. He had one guy, a Lubavitcher, older man. And he says, I know this man's mother. Why do I know, what do I know about him? I used to live in Moscow. And every year before Purim, his mother would come to me with a pack of cigarettes. What, what was going on? So he said like this, this lady, his mother was a heavy smoker, at least a pack a day. She worked, she wasn't a religious woman. She worked in the hospital in Moscow. She worked in the, one of the, she was one of the heads of the, of the department. She had a nice, good job over there. And, you know, she wasn't a religious woman, but 
every day after uh, when she got to the last cigarette of the pack, she would take the last cigarette and put it in a box under her bed. And she would accumulate over the year 365 cigarettes. And then she would take this box and come to me and give me this box of cigarettes. I would sell these cigarettes on the black market. I would buy some flour and I would bake for her matzah. Shmora matzah, special handmade matzah for her and her family. And she would celebrate Pesach, the night of the Seder, with her family, with matzah. So that's what I can say. I can say that she's Jewish, that she risked her life, you know, those days to do matzah, to do all these things was, was um, dangerous and dangerous or uh, definitely risky. Could have lost her job, could have lost uh, so many things. To, this is what she did. So Rabbi Lau was very inspired from this man. And he tracked down this man's mother, who was still in Moscow. And he tells her, listen, you were celebrating Pesach, the Seder, one... We celebrate the night of the Seder, one night of the year. But you are celebrating Pesach, 365 days of the year. Every day of the year. It's the uh, middle of the summer, she's thinking about her matzah, and putting away a cigarette. Every day, she's going out of herself. I could imagine, we could imagine if she wanted to smoke, if she smoked the whole pack, she wanted that cigarette. She was a little bit of a slave to her addiction. But she took away, she put away a cigarette, put it aside. She knew this is for matzah. This, a whole year, she was thinking that she's going to be able to celebrate Pesach with her family. So to recap here. When we're celebrating Pesach, we're not just celebrating something that happened thousands of years ago. Pesach is a personal celebration of our liberation. And we should think to ourselves how we can leave our personally to how we can grow and push ourselves a little bit beyond our borders, a little bit beyond our limits, to become a better person, to become more kind, to become more loving, to become more generous, to become a, do another mitzvah, another mitzvah, study more Torah, give more charity, another thing, another thing. And when we get used to that thing, okay, now it's time for the next thing, right? And that explains why how, how Hashem presents Himself to the Jewish people is not that I created heaven and earth, that, that's for God. We're not going to create heaven and earth. God is telling us, I took you out of Egypt, now you leave your Egypt. I took you out of the physical Egypt. By, by doing so, I opened the channel. I gave you the ability to leave your personal Egypt. And that's why we say this is the bread they, I, they ate in Egypt. Because even after they left the physical place of Egypt, our fathers were still in Egypt. right? And that is why Jewish people celebrated Pesach even in Auschwitz, even in terrible times. How is that? Oh, there were slaves again. What are we celebrating? Yeah, so maybe we're in a physical place called Egypt, but we're still free people. We are free to leave our personal Egypt, whatever it takes to go beyond. And you know what? They bake some people, baked matzah in, in, in the camps, and they try to do whatever they can, go beyond themselves. So maybe they're physically slaves, but they celebrated Pesach, because Pesach is also about leaving our personal, personal Egypts. And the 15 steps of the Seder are the steps for us, guide us to leave our Seder, leave our Egypt. And dipping the matzah, dipping the mara, I'm sorry, into the bitter or the bitterness, into the sweetness teaches us, yes, it's a little bitter, it's a little bit hard to leave our Egypt. You've got to work hard sometimes. But at the end, it's sweet. And, and, uh, and we're close to Hashem. We have, we're by the burning bush. By taking the, like, opening the locks off our routines, we come close to Hashem. And then we're truly free. By breaking out of ourselves, letting our souls ex be expressed, we are truly, truly free people. So have a happy and kosher Pesach. Amen. Enjoy the Seder, whoever will be joining us, or in your own homes. Yeah. Thank you.